0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode, the worldwide impact of the Denisovans and their hybrid descendants upon the flowering of human civilization I
2: mean obviously the Denisovans themselves probably left the scene by about well officially it's 45,000 years ago but you know new evidence seems to suggest some of them may have hung on until around 15,000 years ago and that's almost up to the time of the cataclysm but I think what's more important is to remember that they had hybrid there were people walking around that were mostly modern human but with a percentage of Denisovan DNA now in modern day contacts that's no more than 5 to 6% but it could have been as much as 10% in 15 20 30,000 years ago that would have made them even more denisovan
1: this podcast is brought to you by paranormal contractors if you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business this is no time to be dealing with amateurs you need to bring in the professionals paranormal contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631-552-5835. 631-552-5835. That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night.
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption.
1: Andrew Collins, the co-discoverer of a massive cave complex beneath the Giza Plateau, is standing by to discuss the Denisovans, hybrid humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the genesis of the giants of ancient America. Just a reminder that I'm hosting Coast to Coast AM this coming Sunday, September the 15th, and I hope you can tune in. You can go to coasttocoastam.com and go to the affiliates page to find a radio station that carries the show near you. Tracing the migrations of the Denisovans and their interbreeding with Neanderthals and early human populations in Europe, Asia, Australia, and the Americas, Andrew Collins and co-author Greg Little explore how the new mental capabilities of the Denisovan-Neanderthal and Denisovan-human hybrids greatly accelerated the flowering of human civilization over 40,000 years ago. They show how the Denisovans displayed sophisticated advances including precision machine stone tools and jewelry, tailored clothing, celestially aligned architecture, and horse domestication. How Denisovan hybrids became the elite of the Adena mound-building culture. Andrew Collins is a science and history writer and has been investigating the origins of human civilization for over three decades. He's a noted explorer and the co-author of Denisovan Origins along with Greg Little. Andrew Collins, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Richard, yes I'm fine. Happy to be here and plenty to talk about. Yes indeed. How long have you been researching and writing about the Denisovans?
2: We knew nothing about the Denisovans uh, before the year 2010 really. Ah. Uh, That's when they came into existence out of nowhere. Prior to this time we knew that our earliest modern human ancestors had shared the world with the the Neanderthals um, who occupied mostly uh, Europe, Southwest Asia, uh, and right the way across actually and through to Central Asia. However, what we didn't know is that the other half of the Eurasian uh, landmass had been occupied uh, at the same time as Neanderthals uh, by... A sister group who we now refer to as the Denisovans. Um, Now they take their name from a place called the Denisova Cave uh, in southern Siberia within the Altai Mountains because it was here in 2008 that a small finger bone was discovered. Uh, It was assumed to be modern human. Um, It was actually broken in half and sent to two different laboratories uh, one of which was in California uh, and the other one was the Max Planck Institute of Physical Anthropology in Leipzig in Germany Uh, and both of them uh, ended up um, playing around with it and it was only however the Max Planck Institute that did the full sequencing uh, of this little finger bone and what they discovered was that the genome of this individual was so different to modern humans that it had to have come from a completely different uh, human species, Uh, one that we'd previously not seen before, um, and hence the name Denisovans. And the other important thing that came out of this genome sequencing in 2010 and then again in 2012 with a higher, um, you know, Uh, rate of of sequencing was that many of the genes that had been found within the the, the genome were actually found within us as well strongly suggesting that we had interbred with the Denisovans as we had passed through their territories before their eventual extinction probably around 45,000 years ago although uh, as we might get on there is some evidence to suggest that some of them may have hung around until around 15,000 years ago but I mean what's more important and I think we need to get on to is who were the Denisovans and what were their achievements and maybe we can go on to that next.
1: Right absolutely so they are our ancestors.
2: No the, the Denisovans are closer to the Neanderthals than they are to us I mean, certainly as far as their DNA is concerned, but we all shared what is referred to as a common ancestor. They're not exactly sure who that is yet or, you know, which particular type of human species that was. Perhaps around seven, yeah, about 700,000 years ago, we split off and did our own thing for a while before we evolved into anatomically modern humans around two, three 300,000 years ago. But those that split off and went the, the other way became the Denisovans and the Neanderthals. So we all had a chance to develop our own genome, our own uh, mindset, our own material culture, our own physical appearances uh, that were all probably quite contrasting with each other. Um, and obviously varying degrees of levels of sophistication and what might be referred to as uh, advanced human behaviour, you know, leading to the rudiments of technology. You know, I mean, for instance, we know that the Neanderthals were were actually quite advanced. I mean, even though that's not been credited to them until recent times. I mean, they, they created cave art, they created the most beautiful uh, stone tools, jewelry. they wore cloaks of feathers um, and necklaces of um, of eagle or um, raptor talons of some description. Uh, they used um, gum to create glue uh, they obviously used fire. Um, they may well e- even have developed a um, a system of of maritime navigation. Because there's evidence that they crossed, for instance, to Crete uh, in the Mediterranean at a time when it was, you know, obviously, as it is today, many, many miles away from the um, from the coast, the Greek coast uh, and various other things. So we know that the Neanderthals were very advanced, but it seems as if the Denisovans were even more advanced. And we know this, for instance, from the discovery of this most beautiful item of jewellery that was found in the Denisova cave sometime in the 2000s that if you just look online and put Denisova bracelet it will come up
1: right i mean they had, a, they had they would have had to a have bangle. yeah they would have had to have constructed very pretty sophisticated tools almost like a drill uh in order to, to,
2: to well absolutely to, yeah um, yeah well i mean you know yeah. drills drills are nothing new i mean you know there are many um you know uh, stone tools that are described as, as drills and they're long pointed things and they would definitely cut through leather, through wood and clearly a stone that, that's softer than the actual type of stone that's used to create the tool. However, the piece of jewellery that we know as the Denisovan bracelet has a hole pierced through it and when this was examined um, under a microscope The feed rate of that drill was so fast that it was comparable to a modern day drill. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they had electric drills or anything like that. But what it does mean is that they were sophisticated enough to create a turning mechanism that ran fast, that could cut holes almost instantaneously. Um, And that's just one example of their technology. Another is... That they used bone needles with holes at the end, so that you could thread cords through them. That was almost certainly used for the creation of tailored clothing. Um, and this is at least 45 to 50,000 years ago. Uh, and on top of this, they had musical instruments, uh, arguably the oldest uh, musical instruments anywhere in the world. And uh, beyond that, they had beautiful stone tools, stone tools, which we com- we compare with our own uh, tools that we used all the way down to the Neolithic age, you know, places like Quebec Tepe in southeast Turkey. And it seems as if they developed those tools and gave us this particular technology. It's now believed in the area of northern Mongolia, uh, somewhere just to the south of the huge inland sea that we know as Lake Bacow. Um, And this is very, very, very important because what it means is that there's every chance that aspects of our technologies actually came from the Denisovans. And I would go even further to suggest that all of the rudiments of technology leading to civilization that we had at the beginning of the so-called upper Paleolithic age that begins around 45,000 years ago were given to us complete, already constructed, already in place by the Denisovans as we encountered
1: them. They had domesticated horses long before other civilizations as well, hadn't they?
2: Yeah, you see the the domestication of horses is obviously a very controversial subject I mean technically we didn't get on a horse and ride it until the beginning of the Bronze Age which was one of the reasons why the Bronze Age peoples known as the Beaker people were able to forge um, a path right the way across Europe ending in uh, Britain and Spain and France by about 3,000 sorry 2,500 BC There has always been some tentative evidence that Paleolithic peoples had ridden horses. The so-called Salutrian peoples, who I write about extensively in the new book, Gen- Denisovan Origins, almost certainly were, right, were domesticating and riding horses. But on top of that, the Magdalenian people uh, of uh, mostly of France, Spain, um, they also left behind carved art suggesting Horses with bits for their mouth, and also skulls have been found with the teeth of war, suggesting that you know a, a, a bit that would have been created for riding a horse had been used by that animal or been put in place. But the discovery of horse DNA and horse bones inside the Denisova cave has suggested to some scholars that the Denisovans may have themselves ridden horses. Now that would be again forty five to fifty thousand years ago. I mean that's quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, I mean what happened to this technology we can only but guess and but the thought that they may have been wearing tailored clothing, had musical instruments, beautiful stone tools, um and were wearing incredible jewellery gives us an insight into a people that were incredibly advanced. And may well have had the rudiments of of civilization, may have well have been building structures, may well have been creating irrigation bridges and things like that As 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 early as this period. But somehow the knowledge of their achievements has until now been lost. But what's so interesting is that the physiology of the Denisovans, which tends to suggest that they were very large people. Now, how large? We don't know. It could just be six foot, six and a half feet. But there's tentative evidence it could be even larger than that, maybe seven, seven and a half feet. Tends to suggest that they could have been remembered as giants in legend and folklore. And that's so, so interesting because in the very areas that we find, the bones of Denisovans, which the only confirmed areas, let's point out, is in southern Siberia and also on the Tibetan plateau, what is today northwest China, Uh, there are legends and stories to do with the existence before the presence of modern humans, of giants and ogres that were in some cases very sophisticated, created their own dynasties, created their own buildings and structures, built, you know, Uh, bridges, irrigation, (coughs) excuse me, and you know, were we're present and and handed on these technologies to us. I mean, in one account of giants in the Alte region, it talks about the giants being given the knowledge of musical instruments and passing that on to humankind. And that seems to be exactly in keeping with the evidence that we have from the Denisova cave, where arguably one of the earliest pieces of a musical instrument, have discovered in the form of a whistle or flute. Now, this definitely tells us that the Denisovans had a knowledge of music, an understanding
1: of music and how to play music. It's been suggested that they were autistic. How do we know that? Well, because
2: they had two specific genes... Which were, which have been linked strongly with the activation of autism in modern human groups. Uh, particularly, papers have been written uh, in connection with the Han Chinese, um, where it's been strongly suggested that autism is linked with the presence of these genes. Now, this is not to suggest that the Delisovins were exactly like we might perceive those on the autistic spectrum. But it does raise the possibility that if autism is a genetic, uh, well, I say disorder, we only perceive it as a disorder. It's a different way of, 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 of leading one's life. You know, however strange it might look to others, but that they themselves may have had. This, these, these genes, which, which when activated, allowed them to develop in different areas away from modern humans, to, um, to 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 be creative in a way which we associate with those on what's known as the savant syndrome, uh, or to, yeah, so, yeah, to have savant syndrome. In other words, these extra special talents that include anything from you know music to art to calendar counting to lightning uh, calculations um, to um, you know to, to other creative arts um, which can often be high functioning in other words people with the you know the, the, on the edge of of the, the autistic spectrum can still um, operate within you know a normal environment and utilize these talents uh for you know commercial purposes or whatever um and obviously there are a great number of these these savant-like people i mean it's considered that at least one out of ten people on the autistic spectrum have these savant-like qualities so if we can look at the possibility that the the denisovans themselves had some capacity to be able to develop these savant-like qualities it could tell us why they they advanced much quicker than their rivals the neanderthals who do not seem to have had these same genes i think that's really important you know we know that the neanderthals became quite advanced basically through evolution i should think more than anything else but Is it possible that the Denisovans advanced even quicker because they had a completely shifted, a changed mindset, one that was much more right-brained, but also functional than that of the Neanderthals? Now, two of the qualities of a person on the autistic spectrum is that they find it difficult to communicate with others, and that makes them withdraw from social groups and spend you know more and more time in isolation Uh, this is just a a natural process because they find it very difficult you know to 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 be in the same environment as so-called normal people Um, and this is strangely what we find in connection with the denisovans because there are genes as i've already mentioned that were passed on to modern humans for instance on the tibetan plateau and the himalayas Um, there are indigenous peoples like the Tibetans themselves and the Sherpas who have a specific gene called IPAS1, which allows them to exist and to thrive in environments where there is incredibly little oxygen. So in other words, the way that our body processes what little oxygen there is, is different. And that, Enables them to live in such environments. We couldn't do it for instance, you know, we'd we'd get out of breath within a few minutes and And you know, it just wouldn't work for us, but Well, the people that live there they have a special gene Well, it's now known that the Denisovans passed on that gene to us Because they had it too Now what this means is that the Denisovans must have developed this gene across tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of years in such an environment, which most likely was the Tibetan plateau itself, where we now know that the Denisovans lived because we have a jawbone that was found in a cave in the northeastern edge of the Tibetan plateau uh, that has only recently been identified as Denisovan. It was actually found as early as 1980 by a Tibetan monk inside a cave. And he passed it on to the the Lama, the living Buddha of of his particular monastery, who thankfully passed it on to a local university. Uh, But there it languished um, in a drawer for many years until eventually after the the, um, realization of the existence of the Denisovans, it was brought out. It was seen to have extremely large molar teeth just like the Denisovans of the Denisva cave. Um, and final examination, um, you know, through the, the collagen uh, proteins that, that were inside it, matched that of the Denisovans from the Denisva cave, which means that we now have two very different locations for the Denisovans. Another gene that we know that the Denisovans had, um, or in fact two, another two, was passed down to the Inuit peoples of Greenland. Certainly that's where it's been found and presumably the Inuit peoples of Arctic Canada and Alaska as well. And this gene or these two genes allows the Inuit to live in extremely cold environments. It allows them to bulk up. It allows them to resist the cold. Now, these two genes were also passed on to modern humans by the Denisovans. So this also tells us that the Denisovans must have lived in extremely cold conditions for hundreds, sorry, tens if not hundreds of thousands of years. So again, these two things, the fact that they lived in extremely high remote locations where nobody else would have been, plus extremely cold conditions where nobody else would have been, tells us that these people loved isolation. And that also suggests to us that they were there for a reason, that they probably didn't get on with the other types of human species that existed at this time. Now, who else was around? Well, we know that there were Neanderthals, but we also know that the the Denisovans actually interbred with the Neanderthals because we've actually got a bone of a first-generation Denisovan Neanderthal hybrid that was found at the Denisova case. So the, the two obviously got on,
1: certainly at times. Right. Um, right. So now you have but, a highly evolved brain of the Neanderthal with an even more yeah. evolved Denisovan. I mean, the, their yeah. descendants must have been Wonderkins. Well, exactly. And, and if you start adding in
2: the fact that we would almost certainly have um, interbred with both of these, you know, the Denisovan's on their own and the Denisovan neanderthal hybrids you know you start realizing you're creating mindsets that are completely new and advanced because they are adopting all of the elements of those that had gone before and remember it's those hybrids that take all of this technology and knowledge forward not the denisovans himself and not the neanderthals so they're the ones that we have to thank for all of the developments that are going to take place in the Upper Paleolithic period, which takes us all the way down to 9600 BC, when, of course, quebec Tepe is constructed in southeast Turkey.
1: More of my conversation with explorer Andrew Collins when Conspiracy Unlimited continues. All right, it's Friday. Let's bring in Christian D. Cadure, co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. Hey, Christian, we've got another Roger Patterson clip here, right?
3: Yes, we do. Absolutely.
1: Roger Patterson, of course, responsible for one of the most famous pieces of film footage ever, I guess, next to the Zapruder film. And that, of course, is the 1967 footage of Bigfoot in Bluffs Creek. Let's set this up. What's Roger going to tell us this time?
3: Okay, so Roger's talking about his experience with Bob Gimlin. Roger states that they are not were not confrontational in pursuing the creature, and were certainly giving it space and they didn't want to of course, in any way shape or form disturb the creature
1: all right, let's have a listen. here we go. Uh, it seemed to give me
3: the impression that it didn't want uh, anything to do with it, it didn't run no, they didn't no, they didn't.
1: No, they didn't. All right, so there we hear Roger Patterson saying, It gave us the impression it didn't want anything to do with us. It didn't run. And then in the reversal, Roger appears to be saying, No one digs in. What does that mean?
3: No one digs in. My interpretation of this clearly is that no one is digging in. To pursuing the creature, neither him or Bob at the time and, and trying to chase it down and provoke it in any way, shape, or form. And also at the same time, no one is digging in to pursue in obtaining footage or documentation on the uh, on the creature.
1: All right. So we'll bring you some more Roger Patterson uh, reversals next week. In the meantime, how do people listen to this exciting new podcast, Reverse Speech Radio?
3: They can listen to Reverse Speech Radio by visiting reversespeech.ca or uh, by going to the Libsyn platform, and, which is reversespeech.libsyn.com.
1: And new episodes drop every Thursday. Kristen DiCardieu, co-host of Reverse Speech Radio, will talk next week. Thank you.
0: If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. CONSPIRACY UNLIMITED
1: WITH RICHARD Serrett. Andrew Collins is here and we're talking about the Denisovans and their impact on civilization. Before we get to uh, Gobekli Tepe, let me ask you about the Denisovans in North America. Did they get there and and if so, when?
2: Right, well, I mean, firstly, we do know that Denisovan hybrids certainly must have reached um, the Americas. Now, whether actual Denisovans got there we'll have to wait and see. We haven't got any specific evidence of that yet, but it seems almost certain that they did. Uh you know, there's no reason why they could not have reached the American continent using the methods that any other modern human achieved at that time, whether that be through coming across the Beringia land bridge at times when uh it was possible to cross through it and it wasn't at times when it was drowned beneath the, the waters, um, or they could have um, hopped from you know from coast to coast around the the top of the Pacific uh, and reached Alaska that way, and the the Aleutian Islands, uh, and gone further down the west coast of North America. Or of course they could have come across directly from either mainland Southeast Asia or Island Southeast Asia, there is quite a lot of what's known as Australia Australo Melanesian uh, DNA within certain uh, tribal peoples uh, in South America uh, and also within certain skeletal remains been found in North America, which tells us very strongly that there is a good chance of maritime exploration directly across the Pacific at a very early date indeed, arguably twenty to 30,000 years ago and probably even earlier that still. And so they- we know that people were making those journeys at a very early date. You know, what's crucially is the fact that we have Denisovan DNA uh, within various Native American tribes. It's not very high, let's point that out, but it's still present and it's still higher in some than it is in others. The highest is... Uh, Algonquin speaking people such as the Ojibwa and Cree uh, who are mostly in the, um, uh, the Great lakes St. Lawrence River areas today but then coming down into uh, South America there are certain tribes um, like the Surinan um, who also carry austro uh DNA in them. They've also got Denisovan DNA but it's not clear cut because there are some tribes that have Denisovan DNA that don't have uh, Australo-Melanesian DNA and vice versa. There's some with this Melanesian DNA, but don't have Denisovan DNA. So, you know, we haven't got all the pieces of the jigsaw, but the big other question is whether if the Denisovans were of large size, whether they can account for the existence in North America and in South America, and almost certainly in, in Central America as well, of giants, oversized human individuals whose height would have been anything up to seven to seven and a half feet, maybe, maybe just slightly more, but let's stick within that for the moment. And these have been found time and time again within the you know, Native American mounds mound, of mound building cultures, most particularly the Adena people mm. uh, from around a thousand BC down to about the time of Christ. Um, and yeah, many hundreds and hundreds. And I mean, these are not just you know, sensational news reports in the New York Times or something, you know, these are in archaeological journals and books stretching from the mid 19th
1: century. Down to modern times, I was in Moundsville, West Virginia, earlier this summer. Yeah, and uh, the museum there—it's a—it's a lovely museum, all of the prehistory of the Ohio Valley. Uh, but they sort yeah. of address that issue about you know the, were the Adena's giants, and they—they they, in the in the you know the literature and in their exhibits, they deny that they—they they say no, they weren't well, giants. Well, they ever going to, uh, yeah.
2: Well, they're going to because it just causes controversy, but. Yeah, there are hundreds of reports. There are certain areas where the incidence or percentage of giant skeletons was so high that it is very clear that this was a very specific human group existing within a more normal sized human group. And one example, for instance, is what we call the Valley of the Giants which is the Kanoa uh, Valley of West Virginia, uh, the Kanoa River being, um, you know, a tributary of the, or flowing into the Ohio River. And all the way along here, there are uh, Adena mounds that have produced oversized uh, human skeletons. Uh, and this cannot be denied. I mean, that they, they were properly documented, by the archaeologists working on behalf of the Smithsonian. Uh, And these were published in the Smithsonian multi-volume works. You know, the Bureau of Ethnology uh, bulletins, which were all put together in combined volumes. And these make it very, very clear that you're dealing with a group of humans that existed that are not simply the result of, some kind of genetic disorder or, or abnormality that we might describe today as gigantism, the percentage is far too high. You know, there are percentages that you can uh, consult relating to how many people per thousand that you would, who, who would likely um, get gigantism. And it is far less than the amount that have been found in relationships to normal size human skeletons in the mounds within places like the Kanoa Valley um, and what's interesting there is that the Kanoa Valley seems to have been centered upon this hilltop fortress uh, on the top of Mount Armstrong in very heavy coal-bearing uh, rock uh, which obviously has been mostly exploited today and here you have this huge fortress that possibly goes back to the archaic period of native american history so maybe as much as ten thousand years which was surrounded by these cyclopean huge great stone walls Uh, and it also had these massive stone towers all of which i'm afraid have been destroyed but some of the stone walls are still in place myself and my co-author on denisovan origins um Greg Little and his wife, Laura, um, uh, you know, were accompanied by uh, some local people from from local um, councils who who took us up there and showed us what was going on. And we actually were able to find uh, evidence, of some of these walls and photograph them. But the importance of Mount Armstrong, for instance, was a particular type of uh, stone known as Kanoa black flint. Uh, it's actually a very hard form of shale, actually, but it was used to create stone tools from the pre-Clovis era, from about 13,000, 14,000 years ago, um, right the way down to, you know, historical times. And almost all of it was, um, was mined from the, the slopes of Mount Armstrong, which is almost certainly why that fortress was created And the main reason for the importance of Mount Armstrong is this special uh, flint known as Kanoa, black flint, which was used from at least 8000 BC through to historical times and was exported uh, widely throughout North America and was much prized. And I suspect had some kind of uh, spiritual power, much like obsidian. Uh, does uh, to many cultures around the world, um, and it would seem as if uh, Mount Armstrong, also known as Mount Carbon, you know, was like some kind of centre point, really, of this entire uh, network, and that the people in charge of it would seem to have been these, you know, I won't say giants. I mean, I think the the, the is these oversized individuals. Um, who would seem to have been the shamans very often when their bodies are found in mounds uh, they're centrally placed with normal sized people like spokes of a wheel around them Um, they're often given grave goods that suggest that they're of high status most likely shamans Um, and they existed I mean as I said the, the percentage factor suggests that they are a human group in their own right they are not simply people suffering or experiencing what you would today refer to as gigantism so who were they now were they denisovans um we don't know i mean is the honest answer i mean uh, obviously a lot of people have proposed this and i suggested it as far back as 2014 with in my contribution for the book Uh, Path of Souls, uh, which was put together by uh, my colleague, uh, Greg Little. Uh, I mean, I I built every piece of evidence to suggest that the Denisovans were of large size. And if that's the case, then if they did reach the Americas, then the chances are the so-called American giants uh, were their descendants. And I stick by that. I mean, I'm not saying, therefore every time that we you know that we possibly um find a, a giant bone it's going to be denisovan i don't necessarily think that but i do think that patterns will emerge to suggest that their genetics is linked with that of the denisovans well, let's certainly look, hybrid about, denisovans what about another
1: pattern and that is uh, cosmology is there a pattern or a commonality uh, between the the, com- the cosmology of the denisovans and let's say the early inhabitants of of North America.
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, obviously, if the Denisovans died out, you know, many tens of thousands of years ago, uh, then we would have to start looking for some kind of commonality between the cosmological ideas that would be present, for instance, in the Eurasian uh, continent, which is where they were, uh, and those of North America, which we must see as having existed in isolation, at least since the sinking of the Beringia land bridge around 8,500-9,000 BC Um, and that's indeed what we do find it would seem as if there was a universal idea of a death journey that involved certain geological fixed points in the sky not geological I'm talking about Um, geographical points in the sky which would have to be navigated and reached in order to reach the afterlife. Uh, And this journey goes roughly as follows. Uh, After death, a person who's either deceased, i.e. they've left this world, they've passed on, or, importantly, the spirit of a shaman who would be seen to go into a death-like trance would take a leap of faith towards the horizon, where the stars of either Orion or those of the Pleiades would be seen in the early morning, just before sunrise. And they would take this leap of faith. They would then join that particular constellation, which would like greet them, if you like, almost like a, a living entity. And then they would be carried or allowed to journey along the milky way which links these constellations and they would they would journey along this they would probably encounter certain obstacles or uh, individuals or something along it until they reached a point where the milky way forks into two separate branches seen in terms of generally logs uh, and these logs, which were like log bridges, one of which would take you into the afterlife. But the other one, if you were not worthy, would take you to oblivion um, or in some cases you would be allowed to reincarnate. Um, and the location where this bridge or fork in the Milky Way is located corresponds with the stars of the constellation of Cygnus, the celestial bird. And the reason why Cygnus is a celestial bird is because that bird corresponds with whatever soul bird was seen to be connected with the particular region that these stories built up. I mean, for instance, in Europe and Asia, uh, Cygnus is mostly seen as a swan. A swan is an obvious vehicle of the soul passing from this world to the next. Uh, in Southwest Asia, it was seen as a vulture. Uh, a vulture figures prominently in the carved art of Gebekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe is orientated towards uh, the brightest star of Cygnus, Deneb. Um, and in North America, the Cygnus constellation is also represented by birds, sometimes a goose, uh, sometimes a swan-like creature, sometimes by a a bird called the crane. But still other times it is a giant eagle-like bird known as the thunderbird. Uh, And this is where I find it most interesting, the traditions to do with the thunderbird, Uh, because the thunderbird is not simply some kind of spiritual bird that exists in the air. Uh, It is also a constellation, as we say, but it can also be the term for shamans bird shamans on the ground uh, particularly amongst people like the ojibwa um, and um, various other of the algonquin speaking people some of the plains indians as well also had the thunderbird as uh this this supernatural creature that could take on human forms by transforming itself from a bird to a human and the, the way that it did this was to shed its feather coat it's actually called a blanket feather blanket but the term is almost certainly a reference to some kind of paraphernalia that's made out of of bird feathers most likely those associated with a, a large raptor you know most obviously an eagle but probably also a hawk on occasions um and what's so interesting here is that this thunderbird identified with Cygnus corresponds to a creature that the, the, the soul of the deceased or the soul of the shaman encounters when he reaches Cygnus, which is this figure known as the brain smasher or the skull crusher, uh, which sounds gruesome, I know, uh, but has incredible symbolic meaning because it's about the release of the soul from the body because it was considered that the that the, the, the human skull contained the the the, uh, the spirit, but there is more than one type of spirit. There's two or three different spirits in na- Native American tradition. And one of them would seem to have needed to be released from the skull for it to journey off into the, the afterlife. And the, the skull crusher figure or the brain smasher is some kind of distorted memory of the idea that you have to release the soul by quite literally cracking open the skull, almost like it was an egg. Mm. Um, and this is a you know, really interesting um, you know, symbolism that is obviously derived from rituals where the skull, the human skull, is seen as the point of connection between the physical realm and that of the soul of the deceased, quite literally, so that you would keep the skull back after the interment of the rest of the bones so that you could use it for communication with the dead. Fascinating. And we find this, we find this in, Na- in North America, but it's there right the way across uh, Europe as well. And almost certainly it's there at Gebekli Tepe because, you know, here you've got a cult of the skull, uh, which almost certainly revolved around the idea that the soul inhabits the skull, even after death.
1: Uh- let me jump ahead to the uh, to this point. The, is there a connection between the Denisovans and the the uh, legends of Atlantis? You know, these advanced, highly advanced people. Um, well, I mean, here's the interesting
2: thing because you have to say to yourself, "Well, I like what this man's saying, but how does this affect me?" And the answer is very clear. Up until now, if you don't want to believe what. Conventional archaeologists say that everything's a process of of, of gradual evo- evolution from, you know, the sort of Middle Stone Age through to the New Stone Age, you know, through to Bronze Age to the modern day and, and the, the rise of the first city-states and civilizations. The other alternatives are these. One, that ancient aliens may have, um, you know, given us technologies that allowed us to build things like pyramids and you know, knowledge of the stars, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, may or may not have some relevance to what we're talking about. But secondly, that what we see today in civilizations like Egypt and the Maya and the Inca, uh, Indus Valley, you know, other places around the world is the product of the survivors of a lost civilization. One that is identified in the Atlantic as Atlantis and one that's identified in the Pacific as Mu or Lemuria, although technically Lemuria is is a misnomer because that should be placed in the Indian Ocean. That's another story. But so the idea there, and this has been promulgated by a number of authors since the mid 19th century, is that these, these, former civilizations that were island continents you know on which thrived these these huge you know uh, human communities were devastated by cataclysms now plato who is the first to write about atlantis talks about this island continent being swamped by earthquakes and floods in one terrible day and night but there are other legends of a similar nature that could be connected with Mu uh, or any other lost continent. Uh, and, you know, there are legends. There's no question about that. I mean, um, certainly that there's there's uh, legends of them in the Pacific of a lost continent. It's not called Mu. Um, I can't remember what it's called at the moment. It's gone out of my head. But, uh, but there is definitely these traditions. So it's there. The idea that there was a cataclysm, uh, whatever caused it, I mean, to be honest, the modern idea is that it's some kind of comet impact, something I've written about extensively in right, my book,
1: the, the Younger Dryas comet The Younger event.
2: Dryas event, which, yeah. to be honest, is probably the correct solution to it all. That took place about 10,800 BC, devastated large parts of the Northern Hemisphere uh, with the biggest amount of destruction in North America, uh, but would have had a massive impact. On human populations all across the northern hemisphere, and to some degree probably even in the su- southern hemisphere um, this is this is something that's almost mainstream now i mean it 's almost something that people like myself and graham hancock have 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 forwarded these ideas for many years, and it's almost like we're handing the, the you know the baton onto our you know our academic scholarly. Counterparts now, we don't even almost have to talk about it anymore. But the importance about this is that this cataclysm would have destroyed what we call Atlantis or Mu or whatever. And with it would have gone any knowledge and any technologies, high technologies that perhaps had existed prior to this time and may well have been inherited from people like the Denisovans. So yes, there is that connection, but I do not believe that Atlantis, which I see personally as a memory of the area of a landmass that formerly existed uh, around, what's today, the Caribbean, the Caribbean, and the Bahamas, as directly related to uh, Denisovans. I mean, yes, it could have been peopled by their hybrids, but I don't think that's a relevant part of the story at this time. Um, more important, what's more important is the fact that we now have a third option. So we've got ancient aliens, we've got Atlantis as two possible sources of the technologies that allowed us to create civilization. Now there's a third. The third is that the rudiments of civilization were handed to us on a plate by those who were here before us. Most obviously the Denisovans, but
1: also to a degree... The Neanderthals, very quickly, uh, because we're at about, almost out of time here. But but less than a thousand, or no, a little more than a thousand years later, after the Younger Dryas comet event, when you say a lot of this technology and these civilizations were wiped out, we have Göbekli Tepe. Yeah, how does that happen within that time frame? Well, well,
2: I mean it's govelli Tape was constructed immediately after the end of a 1200 year mini ice age, which is basically known as the Younger Dryas event. It was almost certainly triggered by the aftermath of this comet impact uh, due to probably a, uh, a nuclear winter, um, which was you know, caused by all the dust and debris of the wildfires that went up into the upper atmosphere, plus the sudden release into the oceans of meltwater that changed the temperature of the oceans and triggered this ice age right at the tail end of this Gobekli Tepe is built. And I'm pretty certain that it was built as a response to what had just taken place, that it was almost like whatever types of cult structures that had been built up to this time had obviously not worked. You know, we, we, the, the world had nearly come to an end We need to build bigger and better. We need easy access to the sky world to deal with the supernatural creatures that were seen as responsible for such cataclysms. Normally, these were either supernatural dogs or wolves or foxes, all of which were seen to be like tricksters, tricksters that could, you know, upturn the apple cart and cause devastation in the world. Uh, I mean, the most obvious trickster in this form of course is Fenris or Fenrir the huge great wolf of Norse mythology who is one of the things that brings about Ragnarok you know the the age of fire and ice that that destroys the gods um, Fenrir is almost certainly a memory of the comet that initiated the younger Dryas around, around 10,800 BC and was first proposed as such by Ignatius Donnelly, the U.S. congressman and author of books like Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Ice, back in the 1880s. He was the first that came up
1: with this, and I think he was absolutely correct. But, but the continuity, despite this cataclysmic event, I mean, a thousand years uh, sounds like a long time, but but it's not really. So, did some remnants of uh, the those who had been handed this knowledge from the Denisovans? Did it's? Did they survive underground? Or uh, and 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 when you go back, like say seventy thousand years ago, in the Big Toba eruption? Yeah. Uh, I mean, how did they survive?
2: It's it's an it's a difficult one. I mean, I mean obviously the Denisovans themselves probably left the scene by about, well, officially it's 45,000 years ago, but, you know, new evidence seems to suggest some of them may have hung on until around 15,000 years ago. And that's almost up to the time of the cataclysm. But I think what's more important is to remember that they had hybrids, you know, that there were people walking around that were mostly modern human, but with a percentage of Denisovan DNA. Now, in modern-day context, that's no more than 5 to 6%. But it could have been as much as 10% in, you know, 15, 20, 30,000 years ago. That would have made them even more Denisovan in appearance, mindset, and material culture. And it's those that we should be interested in. It's their route, their journey, their migrations that are important to the foundations of civilization. And what I show in Denisovan Origins... Uh, which is obviously co-written by my good friend uh, Greg Little, who's handled the American side of it, is that there is a paper trail in the form of a certain type of stone tool that begins in the area of Siberia and Mongolia and is now being touted as the creation of near of, of of denisovans and is then adopted by us and carried by us into different parts of the world particularly westwards through western siberia across the ural mountains into europe down into southwest asia and into places like gobekli tepe i can show that paper trail all the way from siberia mongolia into Gobekli Tepe. So in other words, if you are looking for the builders of Gobekli Tepe, or certainly the ancestors of the builders, you have to look east as far away as Siberia. And I'm certain of that. I'm certain that that's the case.
1: Well, Andrew... Congratulations on, and, and to your co-author, of course, Gregory Little, Denisovan Origins, Hybrid Humans, Gobekli Tepe, and the Genesis of the Giants of Ancient America, now available to order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And we should also mention your website, andrewcollins.com, Andrew C O L L I N S C-O-L-L-I-N-S.com. Thank you so much for this.
2: It's my pleasure, Richard. Thank you.
1: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to fill you in on what's in store for the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. People are starting to finally discover my Strange Planet shop, and they are loving the gear. The Mayan calendar design seems to be very popular right now, and it's beautiful, if I do say so myself. Rick Forges from Atomic Werewolf Studios in Phoenix has done an absolutely amazing job with all of the designs. The Nazca Lines design is also fantastic, but I think my favorite right now is the Time to Redefine Reality t-shirt. But there's so much more than tees. There's mugs and leggings and tote bags and sweatshirts and hoodies and new designs and products arriving every week. You've got to check it out. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the strange planet shop button at the bottom of the page. Strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Grab the gear. Take the journey. Coming up on Monday, on Conspiracy Unlimited, UFO researcher and filmmaker Rob Freeman discusses his journey to document UFO contact and experiencers around the world. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com